Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. It's been an incredibly quiet August for the bond market in the U.S. Certainly, uh, U.S. 10-year treasuries with yields that have remained in the narrowest range in more than a year. But the year ahead, the next six months, the next four months could be a little bit more interesting. Joining us now is Tom Kennedy, head of fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank, overseeing about $526 billion of assets, I believe, based in New York. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for being with us. So looking out... You, you said something in the report that I thought was interesting, which is we were entering a later stage uh, of the credit cycle and you need to dust off your playbooks for this time. What does a playbook for late cycle investing in the debt markets look like? Absolutely. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So really, it's talking talking late cycle is something we haven't had to even discuss for the last 10 years. It's something new. It's something it's something different. Uh, and even candidly, when I look around the floor, there's lots of young people on the floor that don't even know what late cycle looks like. Um, but late cycle is uh, a, th a couple of three, three or four pillars I think we need to talk about. It's duration. We've been underweight duration across the wealth management platform for for many years. So it's Full disclosure, it's a measure. It's sort of how closely tied uh, you know, your investments are to higher yields or yields going up. Absolutely. So yeah, so we there's a if you're underweight duration, you're fearing that interest rates will go higher. So we you've talked about the interest rate on 10 year treasuries being quite low. I'm not so sure it's going to go much higher, and hopefully we can talk about that in the, in the time I'm here. But you want to start to slowly dial your way into duration. Uh, another one we were talking about in the break is about credit. You, For years, you have been incentivized to reach for yield. So let's say that's a traditional investment-grade investor that's going to say, yields in, in investment-grade are not high enough. I'm going to reach to high yield, but maybe not so comfortable with those risks. As interest rates by the Fed start to rise, those credits should be challenged, and we should see a a readjustment there. Um, those are two two key pillars that we're focused on. And then finally, for the first time in a long time, cash actually has a position in a portfolio. Um, again, a challenging discussion to have because you haven't had it for so long, but cash is actually yielding you. T-bills are over 2%. That's, that's an interesting uh, risk-reward proposition to, to discuss in portfolios. How do you discuss that when people don't want to talk about relative return and they say, you know what, we can't really live on 2% pre-tax. Do you send them to the municipal market? I think the municipal market is, is actually looking quite attractive at this point. What's actually interesting about the municipal market is in the front end, we actually see relative value as not especially in your favor, but further out in the, in the municipal curve, there's actually a steepness in that curve. The, the, in, in, in the media outlets, Bloomberg is constantly talking about the shape of the treasury yield curve being very flat, but the muni yield curve is actually quite steep. So if you move further out to say 10-year muni bonds, you can actually pick up 100 basis points in spread relative to short-dated munis. I want to go back to the idea that we're in a late stage. Does that mean that you expect a recession or a downturn in the imminent future, mm -hmm. in the next three months, six months? I mean, what, what does that mean yeah. to you? So late cycle, I think it's importantly to say late cycle is not end cycle. Late cycle means we are closer to the end than the beginning, but I actually believe this economy has a good bit of runway to go in it. Um, the, the key indicator to look at, I mean, if you only had one, would be to look at the spread between treasury yields, two years versus 10 years. It's flattening, 
what historically an inverted yield curve is the, the key measure that I'm looking so for. So you still buy this whole thing as an indicator. So some people try to say, ah, this time is different. You're yeah. not one of those people. No. Okay. Um, the this time is different theory suggests, I think when I've tried to unearth, when people say this time is different to me, they're suggesting that monetary policy is keeping rates in the long end much lower than they, they fundamentally should be. I really don't find that argument compelling, really for two reasons. When you look back at what's happened over the last 10 years, fundamentals in, this, in the United States have changed dramatically. Demographics, it's an aging demographic. By 2020, the Census Bureau is telling us roughly 20% of the US population will be 65 and older. That's relative to 7% pre-crisis. So aging, there are less people working, employment to population ratio is coming down, and then importantly, and it's not discussed nearly enough, is central bank credibility. We, the Fed is telling us what they're going to do, and we believe them, we trust them. So your term premium, the, the risk you should be, the, the compensation you demand for risk is much lower. So all in all, that back end, I don't think has to reprice very much. When I, when I model out interest rates, I actually think they're a little bit rich to fair value right now, but not substantially. And just trying to understand from an investor point of view that has followed what the Federal Reserve said mm. to do, which is basically go further out on the risk curve mm -hmm. and reach for yield, as you described earlier. Yeah. Have they bought products that they really don't understand from people who are no longer in the business of selling those products? That sounds an awful lot like what we went through in 2008. So now you're talking about the, the next piece of this argument, which is the Fed has displaced natural investors, and that's in the treasury market and the MBS market. Uh, I think that has happened quite substantially. But the balance sheet size of the Fed, the new operating framework that they've implemented post-crisis demands that their balance sheet be, be much bigger. So when I look at the underlying trends in the balance sheet, I don't see the balance sheet for the Fed contracting very much more. I'm talking about when I start to model out where the Fed's balance sheet is going to go, it's about $4.2 trillion today. I think it's going to intersect its natural level around year-end 2019 at about $3.5 trillion. It's a little bit higher than what markets are talking about, but it suggests that this monetary policy displacement that's happened for so long isn't likely to reverse very much. It's important to sort of put into context here your background, because yep. you worked at the New York Fed and you helped draft the program uh, that will unwind the balance sheet. Am I correct? That the Fed is following? The, Fed, the Fed's playbook has been out for quite some time. When I was there, we, we put that thing together. All right. So um, it's wonderful then to get your insights on later this year because there is some concern among yeah. uh, fixed income analysts that there will be a choppy uh, sort of stoppage of refinancing some of the Fed's uh, treasury holdings. In other words, as say $20 billion, $40 billion of longer term uh, treasuries come due or three year, 10 year, whatever it is they will let it roll off instead of repurchasing those treasuries and it could cause some kind of hiccup in the bond market. Do you buy these arguments? I really don't. Uh, you can think about a flow versus a stock concept. And really what I'm trying to say is as an investor, I should be responding to known quantity information. The Fed has put out its, its plan. We all know it. We can all look at what treasury reinvestments look like. And we should be able to tell right now this, per, this uh, piece of the treasury roll-off will be reinvested, and this piece won't. So in a sense, when we have known information, we should be able to price that into markets. And I think that's effectively been done. The Fed has slowly, every quarter, been stepping up the amount of treasuries and MBS that it allows to roll off its balance sheet. It hasn't had a substantial impact, in my opinion. 
Um, now that's, you can see I'm a big believer in this stock argument. Uh, being on the investing side of the business, I, can, I understand the flow dynamic, uh, but I just think it's a marginal contributor to, to rates relative to the stock impact. Thank you so much for being with us. Really, really illuminating. Tom Kennedy, head of fixed income strategy at J.P. Morgan Private Bank, overseeing uh, more than $500 billion based in New York. Uh, really, uh, Pim, important insight, especially considering uh, Tom's experience at the New York Federal Reserve at a time when a lot of people say we're not paying enough attention to the roll off of the balance sheet. Evidently, we have less than a trillion more to go for that balance sheet to roll off. The value of gold, it has dropped consistently over the last couple of months. It currently trades below $1,200 an ounce at $1,197 on the COMEX. Here to help us understand what is going on with the precious metal is Ben Hunt. He is the co-founder and chief investment officer for Second Foundation Partners. He is also the creator and the author for Epsilon Theory. They are based in Reading, Connecticut. Ben Hunt, thank you very much for being here. You've got a lot of people who are interested in what you've got to say about the value of precious metals, specifically gold. Do you believe that it is linked to what the Federal Reserve is doing with interest rates? Hey, great to be on, Tim. Thanks, thanks for having me. And, and the short answer is yes. Uh, it, it is absolutely linked to what the Fed is doing. And, and frankly, that's the only thing I think that really drives the price of gold as it's being traded. Look, it, it, this is nothing new. I mean, we haven't had gold responding to, I'll call it a geopolitical crisis for a long time, a decade or more. It's, look, if you're a businessman in Istanbul or Ankara today, you know, you're, you're, you're delighted to have gold. It's, very, it's worth a lot to you because you can't access your, your dollar-denominated bank account. But for all the rest of us, I suspect 99.99% you know, of the people listening to this radio broadcast, the meaning of gold, the, 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 the factor that gold trades on, is, well, what, what's the Fed doing? Well, what, what are central banks doing? It's an insurance policy against central bank error. That's the way I think you should really think about gold and its price. Okay, so before we get to the central bank error part, which I want to tease out and understand exactly uh, why gold would be a hedge against that, I want to just talk sure. about the idea that gold used to be a store of value. It used to be a mm -hmm. haven investment. Are you saying it is no longer a haven investment in any way? Uh, in any way is, is, a, is, a, is a tough, you know, tough uh, kind of additional clause to put on there. But basically, yes. Look, you know, J.P. Morgan, the original J.P. Morgan, you know, Jupiter, Jupiter Morgan, he had a great quote. And his quote was, gold is money, everything else is credit. And look, that was right. That was right back when, you know, J.P. Morgan, the man, was, you know, was walking the earth. But it's, but it's not true anymore. It's not. It, it's not what okay. gold means to investors anymore. And that, it, it, it really, it's not just gold. When people talk about whether it's Bitcoin or they talk about gold as being a store of value, I think they're really missing what that phrase means. Okay. Well, uh, and perhaps it's not 
entirely a coincidence that we're seeing a dramatic sell-off in cryptocurrencies in tandem with gold, although that's probably another story. But I do want to get to your point of why this could be a hedge, why gold could be a hedge against central bank error. Can you just sort of explain that? Sure, sure. And what I'm trying to describe is is what – well, let me back up a second. What I'm always interested in is not what what, you know, we – the words we have for things, but what actually is. And what you actually see in the price of gold, what you actually see in the price of, of any precious commodity, is that it goes up or down depending on confidence in central bankers. Right, because because that's that that's really what gold is there to be. That's that's the insurance policy that I'm talking about. If things get really awful, right, if central makers make some gruesome policy mistake that results in inflation or deflation, it can work either way, right? But it's it's that sort of mistake that gold has meaning for today. It, it 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 doesn't have meaning as an alternative currency. It does. I mean, look, if we get to the point where we need gold to buy something at the store, yeah, yeah, you're better off owning ammunition and seeds rather than gold. My point is that as a security, as an investment, what gold goes up and down on is the degree of confidence we have that central bankers are large and in charge. And right now, there's a lot of confidence in that, and so that's why the price of gold is down. Ben, just quickly, because Doug Cass of Seabreeze Partners, he enjoys listening to you, and he wants to know your thoughts about the VIX, because it rose to 15 from 10 yesterday on less than a 1% drop in the S&P 500 index. Your thoughts. Give you about 20 seconds. Sure. Well, 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 look, the the VIX is another one of these um, uh, constructed entities. I mean, it's 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 essentially the the short to medium term volatility in the S and P 500. But what it also is is a trading instrument. So, in exactly the same way that gold now means something, I think, very different from what it meant for J P Morgan back in the early 1900s. So, do I think the VIX as a trading instrument means something very different than we when it started? And so, you can see these outsized movements for things other than just the mechanistic impact of a change in the S&P 500. Ben Hunt, thank you so much. As always, it feels like too little time. We'll have to have you back. Ben Hunt, co-founder and chief investment officer of Second Foundation Partners and publisher of Epsilon Theory. Earlier today, Home Depot came out with their earnings, beating expectations. In response, shares up less than one-tenth of one percentage point. Not much. Here to talk about uh, what the uh, staples, uh, the retail staples uh, world brings or should bring in the next few months is Scott Mushkin, Managing Director and Senior Staples Retail Analyst for Wolf Research in New York. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for being with us. So we did get those positive results from Home Depot. I want to look ahead. We're going to get Walmart after the bell. What's the biggest concern of analysts on the street, the wild card, given how positive the backdrop of the American economy is right now? Uh, thanks for having me, by the way. And I think if you're looking at Home Depot and you just said the stock's barely up, even though they absolutely just crushed expectations, um, I think 
you know, when people look at housing, uh, there's concern. Uh, there's concern that we're going to, we've been a, you know, in a bullish housing market for a long time. Interest rates are coming up. Uh, certain uh, housing markets have been so, so hot. Uh, unfortunately, not in Connecticut where I live, but in places like Seattle, Portland, Denver, even Boston, uh, these markets have been so hot and they're cooling off very quickly. And I think, you know, we all have, you know, memories of the last the financial crisis and what happened to housing. So I think people are, are growing a little concerned uh, with, with the housing market. And that's what kind of is holding back the Home Depot stock right now. But, you know, Home Depot is one of the best companies out there. And so, you know, we take the opportunity to buy it, to, you know, buy it today with such great numbers. Hey, uh, Scott Mushkin, what about the increases in the cost of fuel, transportation, as well as input costs for things such as imported lumber? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, that's definitely an issue, right? We, we're seeing some inflation creep in. Um, some of that's uh, unforced because we're putting some tariffs on and we're getting some retaliatory tariffs. But right now, you know, the Home Depot and the home improvement sector is managing uh, through that okay. Uh, we saw appliances actually do okay at Home Depot, even though we've seen prices come up quite a bit. So it's something, you know, we're watching. It's something the company's watching. But at, at this stage, it really isn't enough to, uh, to kind of derail the very strong sales that the company's seeing, and the strong earnings, because, of course, that's causing some cost pressures. Um, but Home Depot is a master of, uh, of being efficient in, in uh, increasing their productivity, and we definitely saw that this quarter. Okay, so you were saying that you are viewing this as an opportunity to buy Home Depot. I'm looking at uh, shares right now of the company at $193.72. Where do you see them going by the end of the year? Uh, we have a, a 215 uh, price target uh, is, is kind of where we, you know, where our heads are still. And, um, you know, it's one of the few companies as this market is really rallied. I look at a lot of my companies. I know you guys want to talk about Walmart and, and some of the other names. Um, but the house, some of these housing stocks lately have been left behind, Home Depot, Lowe's. And so it's one of the few places where my DCF is actually, discounted cash flow analysis is, is, is actually nicely above that 193. Um, and so, we, you know, we do like Home Depot still. Okay, but, but I want to go to that point. I mean, you're saying that home builders and uh, housing stores or housing-related stores have done poorly recently. And I'm just wondering, I mean, why? what makes you confident that people are wrong about the cooling housing market weighing on these companies? So... You know, always uh, you don't always want, don't want to be overconfident in, in your analysis. But one of the things I think gets under, uh, I guess, underplayed a little bit is just the strong supply and demand uh, aspects of what's going on in in housing, particularly for Home Depot and Lowe's, where the aging of the housing stock, the fact that we haven't built enough built enough houses, the fact if you look at housing spending or spending into the home improvement area, it actually uh, peaks between 65 and 74. So it's baby boomers are still playing a big role in spending on their house. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is the millennials. The millennials are, you know, we've seen home ownership rates rise a little bit. The, the crest of the millennials is now 27, 28. So they're really starting to get into that area of they're going to buy their first home. Uh, we've seen household formations pick up. So there are definitely, besides the macro cyclical aspects, there are definitely things going on in housing, uh, particularly for Home Depot and Lowe's that are more, more bullish that I think is being recognized. Scott Mushkin, give you about 20 seconds here just to comment on the comps that 
Home Depot is going to have to deal with in the second half of the year because of that $600 million in hurricane-related sales that they have to compare against. Yeah, I mean, it's about a 1% headwind, uh, so it's definitely there, uh, you know, you know, you know, thankfully, knocking on wood there, thankfully, we haven't had any hurricanes yet. So that's a good thing. Um, but it's, you know, it's a little bit of a headwind, but certainly uh, is not uh, such a big headwind that their, you know, their sales will be, you know, we were still expecting five, five-ish type comps into the back half of the year. All right. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, Scott Mushkin, of course, uh, he's an expert when it comes to all things really related to the world of retail. In this case, Walmart, Target and the Home Depot. In China, spending on fixed assets such as factory machinery and public works projects it is at its lowest point in nearly 20 years. Here to tell us more about the Chinese economy and the potential for continued trade conflagration with the United States is Christopher Balding. He is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. He is also the author of Sovereign Wealth Funds, The New Intersection of Money and Power. He is the former associate professor of business and economics at the HSBC School Business School, and he joined us now. Uh, Christopher, thank you very much for being with us. Can you just describe the state of the Chinese economy for those that maybe think it's monolithic? I think that what we're seeing right now is, is, is some real weakening. Uh, what we saw in late 2017 and, and really through, let's uh, say, up through about uh, May this year was a real credit tightening. <clears throat> and so this, is, this has been passing through into real activity. And in China, we're typically looking at about a six to nine month lag from the time credit starts tightening till the time it hits activity. And so we're really starting to see the effects of all that credit tightening that began in, say, November, December trickle down right now. Um, I do think what you're seeing, though, is, is, is some conflicting signals. And what I mean by that is um, a lot of uh, fixed asset investment uh, is, is at uh, decade, uh, decade lows. Uh, but there are other signs that are actually incredibly robust. Uh, land sales and construction starts are up uh, in the mid-teens for the most part. Uh, so it really depends on what you're looking at. And if you look at the credit cycle and where we are with the economy, it's not unrealistic to believe that all of those new construction starts and land sales are going to filter through into, let's say, not a boom, but let's say a pickup in the second half of uh, this year, in the latter second half of this year, or the early first half of next year. Christopher, there's a story in the latest edition of The Economist. The headline is China losing the trade war against America. What do you make of that? Do you think that it is? Um, it's, it's, it's tough to say who's, who's losing it because in, in the grand scheme of things for, let's say, a, a 15, nearly $15 trillion economy, um, $50, uh, $50 billion in tariffs is, 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 is effectively zero. Um, but what there is prompting in, in a lot of China is a, re, is a lot of concern about uh, one of the things you've seen in, in political circles is, um, did China try to get too big too fast to stand up to the United States? 
United States. Um, I also think it's very fair to say that there is uh, that that this discussion over the trade war that you're seeing in China um, is is kind of a proxy for two specific discussions that people uh, don't want to have in public, and that is first of all uh, the political crackdown led by Chairman Xi, um, really uh, reversing a lot of the liberal reforms over the past uh, say 20 years, uh, and then furthermore uh, whether or not uh, China should open its market. Uh, there's been very little discussion in China about that. So this hand wringing about uh, is China losing the trade war? Um, there is some very valid uh, questions about that, but I think it's there, there's other factors going on. Um, and the other thing is is that this is this is likely to have a a, a bigger impact on China, um, even though we always think of China as this trading nation that is is running these large current account surpluses yeah. actually so far. Um, the current account in China this year is is is, is effectively zero, um, and so any impact on trade is going to have a very significant pass through effect to other aspects of the economy, much more than it will in the United States. Uh, Christopher, I'm glad that you broke you brought in this sort of crackdown on liberal orders of things in China because it kind of leads me to ask you about why you decided to leave. I know that you. Uh, opted to leave HSBC Business School and you uh, left China after, I think, after almost a decade, right? What made you decide to do that? So I uh, I was informed uh, last year that uh, that my contract uh, would not be renewed, and I actually debated uh, where you know if I wanted to stay in China. And I actually interviewed with uh, some Western universities in China, um, and I opted to leave because um, I started. You there were stories you could sense the crackdown, but at the same time, as I was talking to people, not even mentioning my situation, you started hearing more and more stories about even innocent issues uh, being grounds for dismissal um, or worse, um, and c- quite honestly, you know, it, did, it, it felt that just remaining in China was simply going to up that risk uh, continually, where I felt it was just better for me to leave China. Christopher, based on your experience, do you see Chinese individuals who have the wherewithal to move money out of China continuing to do so? Um, I think there is absolutely uh, every interest in doing so. Um, people with means um, that, that you meet in China, everyone that I ever met absolutely has some type of, let's say, fallback position. They have hedged their, their bets in some way. Um, at the same time right now, I think China has cracked down very, very hard on capital uh, in, in, in capital controls and made it much, much more difficult to get money out. That doesn't mean that it's not still happening, um, but the, the levels that we're seeing are much, much smaller because it is so much harder to get money out um, in, in different ways. Um, but there is absolutely a continued interest among people with, uh, that have money to get money out of China. Christopher, I want to go back to something that you were saying, which is, you know, is there a risk that China just expanded too quickly and perhaps without the necessary infrastructure to really compete with the U.S. right now? What do you think, just to sort of tie this all together, what do you think is the likely outcome for the Chinese economy going forward here? Are we going to have a higher risk of a hard landing? Um, 
I've I've always been a believer that a hard, uh, let's say, a crisis of, of what we would think of as a crisis, maybe something akin to what we're seeing in Turkey right now, is decidedly unlikely. Um, and the primary reason is is that um, Beijing is acutely aware of what happens if there is a financial crisis. Um, if there is a financial crisis in China, um, it is that once a century event, and so they will not allow a crisis um, except as an absolute last outcome. That doesn't mean that there won't be pain um, and that they won't be willing to impose pain. And so this leads us to, you know, for instance, the trade war. I think there, there needs to be a, a very clear understanding that with regards to China, they will be very, very willing to accept a lot of pain going forward in a trade war or bailing out firms as long as it avoids a type of financial crisis. Christopher Balding, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to the States, if only uh, temporarily. Christopher Balding is, uh, was an associate professor of business and economics at HSBC Business School in China and is a, continues to be a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. I recommend you read his columns. They are very, very good. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.